It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I'm delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. <laughs> You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 327, and today we are talking about books being released on September 7th, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Danica, hello! Hello! How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm good. Thank you for... Uh, listening to my long story about my dental experiences before we <laughs> started recording. That's really all I have going on. Uh, it's nice here in Maine today, and the cats are behaving for the most part, so that's always a bad sign. It means <laughs> that they probably like took my car out for a ride last night, or mm-hmm. they're plotting something. Of course, probably both. Yeah, but you have you have dogs, right? Dogs, plural. Yes. Yeah, and. We went camping for the first time, just me and my partner and the dogs. We haven't actually taken the dogs camping before. Mm-hmm. And Lola, my littler dog, she looks like a pit bull mixed with a basset hound. <laughs> She's very <laughs> weird looking. Um, and she was a rescue from Mexico, so she was a little bit nervous and quite barky when she was nervous, so we weren't sure how it would go. And it it was good. It was fun. But she definitely barked at people a lot, which was not great. <laughs> and also, it poured rain when we were just oh, no. <laughs> making dinner around the campfire. And then Lola threw up in her tent at 4 a.m. Oh, over, no. <laughs> over a lot of things. But yeah, it was still a fun uh. experience overall. But we definitely did come home a little bit early. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel bad for Lola because I too, you know, bark a lot when I get nervous to I, meet people. I kind of blame, <laughs> like she was fine until our like neighbor in the campsite, like someone pulled up with their RV because it was like all RVs except for us. And she got out of the RV, like right in front, like almost in our campsite. And mm-hmm. the dogs were both looking at her, and then she said, hello, like, really loud, and, like, she was oh. coming into our campsite, and the dogs both flipped out, and they did not recover after that. Oh. And, like, obviously it's not really her fault, nice. but, yeah. <laughs> but I was like, come on, man. Oh. We were doing so well until now. <laughs> they were being protective. Yes, very protect. <laughs> I was watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine last night, and one of the new episodes has a lot of Cheddar, the corgi in Ooh. it, and, and Cheddar has an attitude in the episode, <laughs> and it's very funny. I could do a whole episode about animals, and 
their problems and their fun parts. But right now, we're going to talk about books, I guess. Oh, right, yeah. You know, we always <laughs> we always get started. We have to at least cover the weather and animals, mm-hmm. you know. I, I, that's really all my life is. Books, animals, and the weather, you know. I don't really do much else. It's exciting, though. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so before we start talking about books today, and oh my goodness, do we have books? Because today is one of the biggest new release days of the year. I mean, every Tuesday is a new release day, but there's like usually like one in each season that is bigger than all the others, and that is this today. So mm-hmm. we are going to tell you about some great books, but first we are going to hear from a sponsor. It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR, and I am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. Okay. Everyone is excited for this first book that I'm going to talk about. So just start waving your hands in the air now and pretend I can see you. It is Matrix by Lauren Groff. Woo! So Lauren Groff is the author of Fates and Furies, which came out many years ago now. I feel like it just came out, but it didn't. It was like 2014, I think. And that was her last novel. And then she had Florida, which was a story collection, which came out a few years ago. So she's back with her first novel since Fates and Furies. And many people have said, and I include myself in this, that they would not have been drawn to a story or picked up a story on their own about a 12th century nun if it wasn't written by Lauren Groff. You know, if someone said to me, hey, this book is really great, I would have been like, okay. But, you know, Lauren Groff, like, immediately have to read it no matter what. Also, I don't know what it is, but for some reason, I'm always really scared of books set before, like, the 19th century. I always feel like I'm not going to understand them. My knowledge of history is not strong. I listen to people, like, on Jeopardy and, like, people talking about, like, the Hilary Mantel books, and I'm like, I don't know who any of these people are. I don't know any of this royalty. Like, I always get very nervous. But then I read them, and I never have a problem. It's like an unfounded fear, but that is what I am afraid of in reading, is, is books set, you know, a long time ago. And it's unfounded. So this is set in the 12th century, like I said. It's a very slim novel about real people. The main character, a real person, is Mary de France, who is the illegitimate contender to the throne, possibly. More on that later. Uh, Mary is 17 years old, and she is living in the castle in France, and Eleanor of Aquitaine comes along. Now, Eleanor thinks she's all that, probably because she was not only the Queen of France, but also the Queen of England, you know, so she's kind of big for her britches. She doesn't like Mary, and she's like, mm, you're going away. She sends her to an abbey in England where the nuns are sick. There's a horrible disease going around. They all have a cough. Uh, the place is just disgusting. They're starving. It's horrible. And Eleanor of Aquitaine thinks this is a good idea. Like, this is a good place to send Mary. She's glad to be rid of her. She doesn't like her, and she's just like, bye bye Mary is not happy to go, but there's not a whole lot she can do about it. So she takes off, and when she gets there, she does indeed find the abbey and its residents in horrible condition. But Mary decides, if this is to be her life, she is determined to turn it around. 
And what she she comes to realize is that she actually has more freedom here at the Abbey than she ever would have at the castle. Because this is the 12th century and women have no rights and, you know, conditions are horrible for women. Not that they're, you know, super great right now, but back then, like, forget it. She would not have been able to achieve anything. So over the decades, with the help of her visions... She turns the abbey into a place where the nuns thrive and people aren't dying all the time and there's food. I loved the character of Mary, or Marie, as she's called. You know, she knows what is going on in the world, but she doesn't have to like it, you know, and she has a lot of determination and drive. I saw Lauren Groff uh, in an interview. The Riverhead did an event with some of their authors, and Lauren Groff interviewed a nun who studied Marie de France. And it turns out little is actually known about her. She was a poet. She was called Mary the Poet. And her work vexed her contemporaries at the time. Back then, I guess you'd say she got bad reviews. But they don't actually know who she was. So that's what I was saying. Like, she was possibly in line for royalty. In this case, in this novel, she is. But the most common assumption about Marie de France is that she was the half-sister to Henry II, King of England. And that is the that is what Groff is working off of with this novel. But of course, she has taken many liberties with Marie's life. But she has given us this beautiful feminist queer story of 12th century life and this amazing character uh, with so much heart. I would be lying if I said I thought it was a perfect novel. I thought the ending waffled a little bit. But I find that most endings in books are, you know... Tricky. I think it must be the hardest part of a book to write, but it was such a refreshing, unique story. Uh, I do want to give content warnings for sexism, assault, oppression, illness, death, basic 12th century unpleasantness about living conditions, but it's such a good book, and it's it's a short read, and you will enjoy it. It is called Matrix by Lauren Groff. I have the same trepidation about reading books that are set before the 19th century. And I just read The Forest of Stolen Girls by June Her. Mm-hmm. That was our Book Riot Insiders book club pick. So, you know, join that if you want to. And I ended up really loving it. And again, I'm like, why was I so worried about it? It's set in the 1400s in Korea. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's a setting I literally know nothing about. Yeah, that's another one that I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to understand. Like, I don't give myself enough credit. I don't know why. But, it, you know, like The Name of the Rose, I put mm-hmm. up reading that book for I don't know how long. Because I was like, there's no way I'm going to understand it. And it's like, I totally did. I can't say that I loved it, but I understood <laughs> it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, the author generally doesn't expect you to have, like, studied this setting in depth. Like, they'll they'll help you out, you know? I watch Jeopardy every night with my husband, who was a history major, and, mm. uh, like, he'll say the names of things or, like, places, and I'm like, what? 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 <laughs> I'm like, I have not heard most of these, most of these words. I'm like, Grover on the couch. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know what they are. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's fun to learn, though. Mm-hmm. All right. What do you have for us first? Okay, it's kind of a cheat because, again, this is like the biggest publishing day and I'm using one of spots for a book that came out last week. And that's because I read it and I really liked it and I just wanted to talk about it. So I'm talking about it. And that's The Bennett Women by Eden Appia Kubi. So this is a Pride and Prejudice retelling that takes place at a prestigious college. The Bennett Women are the residents of the Bennett House, which is the women's dorm. 
as I've talked about on the podcast before, I'm not the biggest fan of Pride and Prejudice, but for some reason, I am always attracted to retellings of Pride and Prejudice. And this one, I think, did a great job of keeping the same beats in the Elizabeth and Darcy relationship so that it feels like a retelling and not just like it's loosely inspired by it. But it doesn't stick so closely that you know exactly what's going to happen. And there's also a lot more added on to it in terms of characters and the environment and other subplots. So the main character is EJ, an ambitious Black engineering student who is all about working hard to build a practical future for herself. Her best friend is Jamie, a mixed-race trans woman who falls for the charming new guy in school, Lee. Unfortunately for EJ, Lee's best friend Will is a jerk, and Jamie dating Lee means she's often stuck hanging out in his vicinity, despite Will being insulting and then passing out drunk the first time they met. You can probably guess what happens between them, but there's a lot more going on than the central romance. It's very much about the college experience and the relationships you have in your early 20s, navigating new family dynamics, deeply meaningful friendships, and whirlwind romances. Plus, of course, trying to plan a future in the real world when everything feels in flux. EJ's practicality is a cover for the passions that she had to give up in her younger life, and she finds herself crashing face-first into the consequences of that. I really liked the setting of the Bennett house, especially since EJ works as an RA. You get to understand the community they build together there, supporting the other women in the house, no matter what their interests are. There are always performances being put on, art being made, students pulling all-nighters to cram, and sudden drama flaring up that EJ has to tamp down. If you're looking for a new adult kind of book that really embraces the college setting, this is a great choice. I also thought that the EJ and Will relationship was well done, and they had an interesting dynamic that's rooted in the Austin characters without being completely dependent on them. Will is an Asian-American actor who has joined Longbourn Academy to escape from his very public, messy breakup with a celebrity. It also discusses the pressures that he feels to represent Asian Americans on screen in a non-stereotypical way as one of the few Asian actors getting mainstream roles in Hollywood. Although EJ is the main character, we do get to see some other point-of-view chapters, especially from Jamie and Will. I think Bennett Wimmett does a great job of threading the needle of Will being obnoxious enough at first meeting that you, like EJ, instantly dislike him but not so much of a jerk that he's not redeemable. As I said earlier, we hit the same beats of the Elizabeth and Darcy relationship, but interpreted in different ways, and I especially liked the reinterpretation of Darcy's first disastrous love declaration. I'm always interested to see how the Wickham plotline is handled in modern adaptations, because obviously the idea of sex out of wedlock is not as scandalous and reputation-destroying as it was back then. And Lily, Will's sister, is a dynamic character, even if we don't see a ton of her. She is a lesbian, so the Wickham character storyline is very different from Pride and Prejudice. And speaking of Lily, I do want to give content warnings for drug use and a suicide attempt, as well as extreme dieting and weight loss. But overall, this is a fun, absorbing read with a lot of memorable characters. If you like enemies to lovers, romances, or Pride and Prejudice retellings in a modern setting, you should definitely give this one a try. And that's The Bennett Women by Eden Appiah Kuby. All right. 
My next pick is a fantastic memoir called Three Girls from Bronzeville, A Uniquely American Story of Race, Fate, and Sisterhood by Don Turner. Don Turner, the author of this book, uh, wrote this about growing up with her sister Kim and their best friend Deborah. There were only a couple of years between them. They were as close as friends could be. You know, Deborah was like one of their sisters, and it's how they grew up as three young black girls in Bronzeville, which is part of Chicago, um, which is something I did not know. I had not heard of it until I read this book. They do everything together. They share their hopes and dreams. They want to be doctors. They want to be teachers. They go on all their adventures together when they're young. And this book is so well written. It reads like a compelling novel. It's just an incredible example of narrative nonfiction. I know a lot of people love to read narrative nonfiction. This is a great book for that. And at the center of this book is the question, how did three girls who were seemingly almost identical in circumstances and so many ways end up in such different situations as adults? What were the causes? Did they have a chance or was it always fated? As the women got older, uh, their lives went in very different directions. Um, Some of them were involved with drugs and alcohol and crime. There's poverty, there's abuse. Uh, And this is a story of the support and forgiveness they offered one another along the way. And like I said, even though this is a memoir and not a novel, I I don't really want to tell you the outcomes or say more about their lives as adults because I think you should find out for yourself. It has that much of an impact when you learn, you know, what happens to, to which woman. I kind of forgot that the author is one of the women in this book. Uh, And I found myself rooting for these girls. It's heartbreaking. It is. It really is. But it's so powerful and such a beautiful story about friendship. And it's a look at race and class and family and, you know, fate. You know, if you believe in fate, you know, like, you might have a different take on this when you read it. If you like Jasmine Ward or Wes Moore or you enjoyed the short and tragic life of Robert Peace, Uh, This is an excellent read for that. This would make an excellent book club book. There's a lot to talk about. I do want to give content warnings for mentions of racism, abuse, chemical use and abuse, murder, illness, and death. It is Three Girls from Bronzeville, A Uniquely American Story of Race, Fate, and Sisterhood by Dawn Turner. I didn't mean to match them up this way, but where you just talked about a memoir about three black girls growing up in Bronzeville, I have a memoir about three black boys growing up in New Jersey. So they're a good pairing. And this one is called We Are Not Broken by George M. Johnson. So this is another YA memoir from the author of All Boys Aren't Blue, which is a hugely impactful title that I know many queer readers of color hold close to their hearts. This one follows Johnson in their childhood with their cousins being raised by their nanny in New Jersey. The book is organized into chapters beginning with nannyisms, the pearls of wisdom their nanny left them, and a story that illustrates them. It's a celebration of Black boyhood, and the author's note begins with Tamira Rice, and Johnson talks about how they were both Black boys who played with toy guns, and Johnson was raised with the knowledge that being a Black boy was dangerous, that they couldn't do what their white peers did safely. At the same time, the introduction also talks about Black womanhood, how Black women are expected to heal the men around them, to hold everything together, to fix the entire world without complaint and without taking any time for themselves. Nanny is the family matriarch who upheld the family. 
She was also a take-no-crap woman who fought her whole life, including with fists if necessary. She fought cancer six times before her death. She raised 24 foster children in addition to her children by birth, and she was crucial in her grandchildren's upbringing. These stories are about the cousins that Johnson grew up with, as well as the grandmother who watched over all of them. It's in a sort of kitchen table storytelling style. It's conversational, like Johnson is recounting this directly to you, but scattered with poetic asides. These vignettes cover a wide range of topics, centering Black joy while also discussing racism, homophobia, violence, and misogyny. Johnson seems keenly aware of the impact their work can have and how it might be used in a school setting, for example. In the author's note, they ask that if the work is read out loud to refer to slurs as the N-word or the F-slur, especially if you don't share that marginalization. And they also point out their own shortcomings and lessons learned, providing context to the stories when necessary. So Johnson really considers how this work might be received and what might be done with it and really put a lot of thought into that. Black boys are still expected to be adults before they're even done growing, and this book carves out a space for them to be kids and showcases the joys and challenges of black boyhood. It also faces how societal structures impose into these boys' lives, including mass incarceration. Fans of All Boys Aren't Blue are sure to love this one, too, as well as anyone looking to read more queer memoirs by authors of color. And that's We Are Not Broken by George M. Johnson. I meant to get to that one, and I have not yet, but I it is on my short list. I do have a lot of short lists, so. Yeah, I expect so. <laughs> it's like I have one in my office, I have one in the living room, I have one in the kitchen, I have one mm-hmm. in my bag. It's like, I, oh, I'm going to make a new short list of books that I need to read sooner, and it's just like, in a few days I will be making a new one. But that one is definitely at the top of my list, and definitely at the top of books to purchase on Tuesday, because we are not actually yeah. recording this on Tuesday, but um, <laughs> I look forward to that. Uh, my next book is another highly anticipated novel. It is The Inheritance of Orquita Divina by Zoreta Cordova. And this is Zoreta Cordova's debut novel. Cordova has written many, many amazing books for younger readers, but this is her first adult novel. It is a big, sprawling, exciting magical novel. I'm going to say magical many more times when I'm talking about this book, so just brace yourself now, because it really, really is. So Orcata Divina Montoya, this follows her life. She's the main character, and we see her as a young woman in Ecuador and follow along in her adventures and trials and tribulations until she is an old woman living in her house on four rivers in the States. She has moved to the States um, I, I'm not sure how much to say about this because it is magical. There is magic in this story. So I'm just going to say the house did not get there by conventional means. But her Four Rivers house, this is her home where she stays. Orcata did not have an easy life. She was born under a bad sign. Like, literally. Apparently, like, she was born at the worst time. Uh, and the cosmos now is responsible for her bad luck and a lot of the problems that she has in the world. Orcata has five husbands. She has six children and she has five grandchildren throughout the course of her life. She has had a lot of loss in her life. And like she moved to the States, I think, after her second husband. And she sort of figured out in a way to alleviate her problems and change her luck. But that just 
brings other problems. And the, also, the people of Four Rivers are unhappy to have the Montoyas there. But Orcada has made friends with the sheriff, and so the sheriff uh, keeps them safe. But also, she never leaves her Four Rivers home. Never. Not ever. Does not go outside her home. Everyone must travel to see her. Her family must go to Four Rivers to see her. And now, in present day, the luck of the Montoyas is affecting the grandchildren. And Orcada is pretty sure she's going to die. And she wants them to travel to Four Rivers for her funeral and to learn the real stories of the Montoya legacy and the family curse. Did I mention that this book is magical? It's so magical and fascinating and beautifully plotted and heartbreaking and inventive and I just so rich. I loved it. I read it, oh my goodness, so long ago, but I can still like see a lot of details very clearly. If you like Practical Magic or The House of Broken Angels or The Five Wounds, this is a great book for you. I was utterly charmed. I do want to give content warnings for many things, including racism, violence, assault, abuse, illness, death, loss of a loved one. Uh, And if you need more, I would suggest doing some research before you read it. Uh, But it's just, oh, it's so good. And the cover, unbelievable, just outstanding. One of the best covers of, of the year, for sure. It is The Inheritance of Orchida Divina by Zoraida Cordova. And now we are going to hear from our next sponsor. Okay, Danica, what do you have for us? Yes, I have a very interesting book. It's called The All-Consuming World by Cassandra Ka. And fun fact, the first Cassandra Ka book I read was a paranormal romance novella called Barely a Lady, which is about a werebear fashionista, which was cute and fun, and I really enjoyed it. And I found out later, this is very much not Ka's usual genre. They usually write horror and sci-fi and pretty brutal horror and sci-fi at that. So although those aren't my usual genres, I decided to take a chance on Cause Newest, although they have another book coming out next month, which is wild. The all-consuming world is a little bit heist novel, a little bit noir narration, a hint of Lovecraftian, and a lot of gritty sci-fi. Maya is a rabid dog of a mercenary clone who is ready to fist fight with God. She is entirely, illogically, wholeheartedly devoted to Rita, who is a mad scientist type. Rita is cold, withholds affection, and is always pulling the strings in an elaborate scheme. She is manipulative, even cruel, and always five steps ahead of anyone else. They both used to be part of the Dirty Dozen, at least that's the most polite name for them, a group of criminal women. It's been 40 years, though, since a job went bad and left two of them dead permanently. Maya is used to waking up in a vat of goo, newly regenerated from her most recent grisly demise, but there are some deaths you can't come back from. Now they've got to try to get the band back together for one last job. The universe is ruled by AIs, and Maya and her fellow clones are the last dregs of what passes for humanity. Rita says that the AIs are ready to wipe the last of them out and start fresh, but who knows if you can really trust anything she says. This is a fairly short book at 275 pages, but it packs a ton in. The narration style is distinct. Maya's point of view characters, which are most of them, drop the F-bomb about once a paragraph. Throughout the book, 
Ka uses some really distinct metaphors and similes, sort of like a noir detective story, but with a bloodthirsty, futuristic perspective. For example, one line is, the sound unspooled between neurons like a tendon snagged on the tooth of a great white. Also, either keep a dictionary on hand or just bask in Ka's superior vocabulary. I kept rediscovering words I haven't encountered in many years and then bumping into a good chunk that I have never seen before. This is definitely a story that throws you right into the world, trusting you'll pick it up as you go. There are factions of AIs, each with their own values. AI minds interconnect in a grand conversation. And AI have elaborate rules for communication, sampling lines and voices from all of recorded human history, a laugh from Audrey Hepburn, a line from Leonard Cohen. Age ships are sentient ships of unfathomable size and power, capable of swallowing stars. It also has some unique visuals. Needless to say, the Butcher of Eight's appearance is just as intimidating as the name. We also get a lot of detail of being awake during eyeball surgery, so definite content warnings for gore. Most of the book is spent in the getting the band back together plot, which is good because it lets us get slowly introduced to a big cast. They are all queer women and non-binary people with very different personalities. There's an ethereal, worshipped pop star that literally glows and has multiple mouths trailing down her neck, and a disembodied woman in code who is corrupting the conversation from within, just to name a few. But the relationship between Maya and Rita is at the heart of the story. Maya can't seem to control her loyalty to her, even when Rita hurts her and everyone else in her life. It's also just fun to be in Maya's head because she is so out of control. The only time she feels comfortable is when she is in a deadly fight. This is also a story about the defiance and audacity of humans of never knowing when to give up. This kind of gritty sci-fi is not my usual genre, but I really enjoyed the ride. And that's The All-Consuming World by Cassandra Ka. So two things. One, I love Ka's other upcoming book, which is out in October, called Nothing But Blackened Teeth, which is just straight out horror. That looks so good. Yeah. Yeah. And the cover is, oh my goodness, so <laughs> scary. Um, it's really, really fun. And two, as a person who has a real affection for the F word, even I was like, holy cats. Yeah, it's intense. <laughs> the swearing in this book is like none I have ever seen before. <laughs> Yeah, and it's an interesting mix of, like, so much swearing. Definitely, yeah, not something I would normally even notice that much in a book, but it's right. sometimes, like, the F word, like, four times in a sentence. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And then mixed with just, like, the most elaborate vocabulary I've ever yeah. seen in a yeah. book. It's definitely unique. Mm-hmm. Definitely unique. I enjoyed it quite a bit, though. So... For my last pick today, I am also not speaking about a book that comes out today because it's been a really long time since I think I've talked about a book that was just so banana pants that really it needed to be mentioned. And I actually, I think it was two weeks ago, I was recording an ad spot for the show and I, uh, this book was the sponsor and it just was in my wheelhouse, so I picked it up. It's called Bloodless. It's the 20th book in the Pendergrass series by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. On the cover, it says, like, Preston and Child's Bloodless. And 
This book is about, well, basically the, the pitch was, it's about D.B. Cooper and vampires. And my middle grade self was just like, ah, because D.B. Cooper, you know, like one of my fascinations as a child, vampires, of course. And so they, my inner middle grader just screamed until I read this book. And also, I can't believe this is the 20th book. I've never read any of the books in this series, but they are all New York Times bestsellers. Two of the books in this series, readers in a uh, NPR poll chose two of them as being among the 100 greatest thrillers ever written. They're about Agent Pendergrass, an FBI agent, and his partner, Agent Coldmoon. And this one also includes Agent Pendergrass's ward, Constance. And at the beginning of this book... And first of all, let me just say, I read this book. I've not read any of the others in the series. Did not miss a thing. Did not feel like I wasn't in on something. You know, I just, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So the book opens in November of 1974, which is when D.B. Cooper hijacks a plane. This is a real story that happened in 1974 in the Pacific Northwest. A plane was hijacked by someone calling himself, well, his, he was calling himself Dan Cooper, but the news got it wrong. I thought he said his name was D.B. Cooper. He asked for money, he changed planes, and somewhere in the middle of his next flight, he jumped out of the back of the plane with parachutes and all the money, and no one ever saw him again. This is like 1974. No one knows who he was, no one knows where he went. In the mid-80s, a child playing on a riverbank found some of the money, but that's all that's known. And it was only like two years ago, three years ago, that the FBI finally decided we're going to close this case. There's been many theories about who it could be. People are like, oh, I think it was my great uncle, or, you know, I think it was this person. But to date, this this is the only unknown perpetrator hijacking of a plane. And it's it's fascinating. It's an unsolved mystery. And so we get the story of that happening at the beginning of this book. And next, it's present day. And the agents are leaving their last case, which took place in Florida, like in the book before, and they're supposed to be going home, but instead they're derailed and they're sent to New Orleans because bodies are being found with all the blood sucked out of them. But it couldn't be vampires, right? Because vampires aren't real. So the agents go to New Orleans. They move into a hotel with a lot of history, including a mysterious proprietess who only moves about at night. So what does a hijacking in 1974 in a series of seemingly vampire murders in present day have to do with one another. It's bananas. Pendergrast is a bit of a stereotype, Agent Pendergrast. He is this Sherlock Holmes kind of figure who is so brilliant, but also wildly frustrates those around him because he doesn't like say a lot about what he knows or why he thinks things are happening until the very end. Um, but it is so much silly fun. And as the book comes to the end, it goes flat out banana pants, but in a good way. I enjoyed this book because I thought it was really well written, first of all, and it went all in on the weirdness, and, like, I had to respect that. The key is that it takes itself seriously, but you shouldn't. But I could not put this book down. I can't think of any novels or hardly any other novels I have enjoyed that have more than one author, but these two seem to have the formula down. So I, I want to go back and read all the others. I mean, I thought it was so much fun. And I am now super jealous because I found out that pre-orders of this book came with trading cards, which is awesome. So anyway, if you're looking just for escapist banana pants fun, I highly recommend picking up Bloodless by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. All right. Well, from possible vampires to possible ghosts, 
My <laughs> next pick is The Girls Are Never Gone by Sarah Glenn Marsh. If you're looking for an old-fashioned haunted house story, but with a queer disabled teen main character, this one's for you. Dare was co-host of a popular YouTube ghost hunting show with her boyfriend, but then he broke up with her, and now she has to start over. And I should say, her name is Dare, in case you didn't catch that. Just roll with it. Her new project is a solo podcast where she investigates one story in long form. She got an internship to help restore Arrington Estate into a museum. Years ago, a girl drowned in the lake on the property, and it's been rumored to be haunted ever since. Dare is an interesting take on a ghost hunter because she is both skeptical and hopeful about the existence of ghosts. She had to face her own mortality very young when she realized that she was dependent on medical intervention for her type 1 diabetes in order to live. Now, in addition to the medical equipment that she keeps on hand, she also has Waffles, a not-quite-as-useful service dog whose alerts are unreliable. She has had an interest in the afterlife for many years, and she would love to see a real ghost, but despite all the investigations she has done for the channel, she's never found one. Dare looks for scientific explanations first. Still, she brings a whole collection of ghost hunting equipment with her to the house, and she's serious about the investigation and also wants to look into whether there's any hidden history that she can dig up about this death. There at the house, she meets a fellow volunteer who also happens to be the commenter who alerted her to the possible haunting, who is also a cute girl. Quinn and Dare immediately hit it off, and Dare tries to tamp down on her crush. She is fresh off a breakup, and although she has known that she is attracted to multiple genders for a while, she's never actually acted on it before. And then there's the third member of the volunteer team, Holly, and all three of them develop an instant, easy rapport that serves as a nice contrast to the creepiness of the house. Arrington Estate is a decrepit, falling-apart house that always seems to be leaking water from the ceilings, regardless of the weather. It's a slow build, both in terms of the haunting and the slow burn romance. We first really get to know the characters, with a few weird things happening in the background with the house, like a glowing light in the middle of the lake or a glimpse of something in the mirror. It's atmospheric, and even before anything particularly scary happens, there's a real sense of Arrington Estate as a character with its own personality and motives. I really enjoyed the podcast element. It reminded me of Indestructible Object by Mary McCoy, which is another queer YA with a bisexual main character who had a project with her ex-boyfriend and had to start over when they broke up. In both of these books, they nail the podcast excerpts. They really sound like podcasts and ones that I would listen to. The creepy atmosphere, on the other hand, reminded me of The Dead in the Dark by Courtney Gold, which I have talked about on the podcast previously and I really enjoyed. And I am very happy that sapphic YA horror is beginning to have enough titles to choose from. This is being called The Conjuring Meets Sadie, so if that appeals to you, definitely pick this one up. It's a perfect read for a breezy fall afternoon. And that's The Girls Are Never Gone by Sarah Glenn Marsh. I really liked this one. Yeah? I didn't know you read it. Yeah, I thought it was really fun. I like mm-hmm. podcast books, like books with podcast elements, and also Things in the Water Scare Me. Yeah. So like, me too. You know, when they go out <laughs> on a lake and it like might be something, like it's scary. Yeah. 
So I thought it was really fun. Also, I really liked waffles. I was like, right? if anything happens to waffles, waffles, I'm going to be so <laughs> mad. Yeah, uh, I feel like it's a fair enough thing to spoil. Waffles is going to yeah. be okay, guys. Yeah. You don't have to worry about waffles. Because otherwise, you would have had to. You would have had to give a, a warning for that. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't recommend a book with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nobody wants anything to happen to waffles. Um, so those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I'm going to read Edie in Between by Laura Simpson, which is a YA, also queer YA book, about a reluctant witch who has to face her family magic. And I'm a chapter in. I'm really enjoying it so far. What are you going to read next? Well, I was going to do some work reading, but then this morning I got a copy of The Woman Beyond the Attic, the V.C. Andrews story by Andrew Niederman, and all bets are off. I want to read this. Yeah. Uh, V.C. Andrews, the author of Flowers in the Attic, and famously, you know, died in like 1986. She was 60-something. She died in 1986. At the time of her death, she had seven published novels that had sold more than 30 million copies. And the publisher was like, we gotta keep this going. And so they hired someone to write these books under her name, like continue her series, write new series. And there have been like 40 more or something like that since she died. And plot twist, the author of this biography is also the author of all the other V.C. Andrews books, Andrew Niederman. So... (laughs) Right? So much fun. So (laughs) I'm really excited to read this. Because as an adult, I think about the V.C. Andrews books and I'm like, what? What? (laughs) You know, when I was in high school, we had all of the V.C. Andrews books in the library. We had all the Sidney Sheldon. And I'm pretty convinced now that it was just because the librarian wanted to read them because those were not, like, (laughs) really books for kids. And, you know, we all read Flowers in the Attic when we were young. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's called YA. And I'm just like, what? Um, So... I'm really excited to read this, if you couldn't already tell. (laughs) It got, like, a YA cover at some point. Like, it was republished by, like, Simon Pulse or something. Like, one of the YA publishers in print. And I, it's a questionable choice, but there it is. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm sure it's not tame by today's standards, but it's not, you know, I don't know. It's not shocking, I guess, (laughs) anymore, Mm -hmm. but... Yeah. I find it fascinating that like two of the authors that are the most common adult books that kids read are V.C. Andrews and Stephen King, which is really just jumping yeah. into the deep end there. Well, I mean, why not? Like when you're a kid, why wouldn't you want to read those books, you know? Mm-hmm. But as adults, I, I like, we're like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what were we doing? Um, so that's what I'm going to read next. And that is all for today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink, and her three cats. I'm sure they help in some way. Uh, You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. If you want to find us online, Janica hangs out on Twitter at lesbrary, which is L-E-S-B-R-A-R-Y. I mostly hang out on Instagram at franzencomesalive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And thank you, thank you, thank you a million times to all of you who have already done that. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime... 
Happy, Happy reading. reading.